It's something for nothing. The Rush Fancast, Steve and Jerry with you. Jerry, how are you today? I'm great, Steve. How are you? I'm very chipper because today we are going to be talking about moving pictures. I know. I'm nervous. I'm nervous too because this is Tom Sawyer, Red Barchetta, YYZ. This is this is the quintessential Rush that I we're know, going to be talking about. Are we qualified to talk about this? I keep saying that. No, we're not qualified to talk about anything <laughs> that we've been talking about. And I feel like we've used all our superlatives in the in the previous episodes about how great a, a, a particular album is. When this album is really good. We just got finished talking about Permanent Waves and how freaking amazing it is. And now yeah. we have to talk about moving pictures. Maybe we should have, I don't know, talked about some crappy band in between. Are you going to name a crappy band so I can get more emails? <laughs> no, about I'm how? not going to name a crappy band. Okay. I'm not going to do that. You can follow us on Twitter at RushFanCast, Instagram the RushCast, and email us. Jerry, we have uh, an issue with our email this week, don't we? We do have an issue. Evidently, some of our loyal listeners have been emailing us at RushCast, not the RushCast. Ah, so it's the RushCast at gmail.com. That's what we've been saying, but yeah, people get confused. Evidently, I, I got an email from the owner of RushCast, and uh, he was just like, hey, uh, could you make an announcement uh, that it's the RushCast for your website? I don't know how long he's been getting our emails, but. So if you joined our email list, make sure you join the right one. If you haven't heard from us at all, that's your cue to take a look. So it's the RushCast at gmail.com. And I also wanted to point out, we are not spam emailers. You get one email a week from us, and that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. So sign up for the email list, therushcast at gmail.com. The base intro is always done by our good pal Lex. He was very excited. He texted me today. He said he was going to learn every song on moving pictures. Really? And then just let me pick. How cool is that? Yeah. Maybe you can play a different different one on the intro and the outro. Well, yeah. I don't know if he's going to record them all, but he said he was going to learn them all. Oh, okay. There you go. That's the difference. So anyway, uh, we have our... Twitter poll for the day, Jer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. We were discussing permanent waves and I asked the Twitterverse, as I do, what their favorite song on side one of permanent waves is. Your choices are, you know these, The Spirit of Radio, Free Will, and Jacob's Ladder. This is a tough one. Hmm. I'm going to go with Spirit of Radio. You are correct. The Spirit nice. of Radio won pretty, pretty easily, 46%. Handily? Handily to 32% for free will. Jacob's Ladder had quite a showing up against those two juggernauts, 22%. Nice. You would think Jacob's Ladder would have fallen by the wayside, but it did not. No. So that's our Twitter poll for today. Sweet. Very sweet. Do you have an email for us, Jaron, our new email feature? I do. I have an email from a listener named Dan who is talking about our Hemispheres podcast. Oh, nice. He says, thanks again for the great discussion about all things Rush. You're giving me a reason now to look forward to Monday mornings, a nearly impossible feat. That was a good choice by us to do Mondays. have the podcast out on Mondays. This is great. Yeah, at least for Dan. Uh, he said, a few weeks ago, when you covered Hemispheres and Rush's greatest song ever recorded, La Villa Strangiato, you mentioned Alex was unknowingly influenced by a jazz song from the 30s that was a staple in cartoons called Powerhouse. I instantly thought, same could be said for natural science. Really? Yeah. However, on Monday, you made no mention of the Dave Brubeck Quartet's Blue Rondo a la Turk intro that, to me, is clearly heard within the groove before 
a quantum leap forward in natural science. Does it check out? Yeah, it pretty much checks out. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. I've showed the similarities to family, friends, and coworkers, and they all seem to agree, but maybe they're just pandering to my rush fanaticism. To me, this is another example of Alex and Ged being influenced by the complex rhythms of jazz. Time Out would have likely been an often played album in their house in the late 50s as their minds were developing an appreciation for music. Or is it just plain coincidence? What do you think? Hmm. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I have no idea, but that's very cool. If you listen to it, I'm, I'm assuming you'll cut in. Oh, I can do uh, that. Know. Sure. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. There's so much going around these days about bands, uh, songs ripping off other songs, lawsuits and things like that. Most of the time, I don't really hear where this supposed theft is coming from. It sounds like it, but I don't know if it's, you know, outright thievery. Well, it, that's tough to prove. I mean, it would have to sound exactly like it. Yeah, like My Sweet Lord. Yeah. I mean, something like that, yes, but I'm guessing it's not close enough for there to be any sort of lawsuit. No, but it, it sounds a lot like it. You be the judge. So, Jer? Yes. Moving Pictures. Moving Pictures, yeah. Rush's eighth studio album produced by Terry Brown, as all the albums were up until Signals, released February 12th, 1981. We were 12 years old, and I was just becoming aware of Rush at this point. Were you? You, I don't think so. I I mentioned this on the first podcast. I was a member of Columbia House. Do you remember (laughs) this? Of course. You got 13 albums for one penny, and in 1981 or 82, right around there, I got 13 albums for a penny, and one of them was Moving Pictures. And that was my introduction to Rush. Wow. And another one was an Aldo Nova album, right? Uh, No, I got, I think, Shake It Up (laughs) by the Cars. I think Signals might have been another one. It might have been 82 when this happened. Signals might have been another one. I forget all the albums. I don't have the cassettes anymore. If I did, I could give you all all 13 because they had those... The cassettes had that pink and white stripe along the side <laughs> yeah. because they were ripoffs. They weren't the actual cassette. Oh, yeah. The, the quality of them was terrible. Oh, yeah. They were just copies. Yeah, they were just copies. Like somebody just copied them in the office. Yeah. And the thing that's amazing is Moving Pictures is also one of the first records I bought on CD. Now, this was a couple of years later, I guess around 87. Yeah. And I remember getting moving pictures on CD and just being blown away because I had listened to it on cassette up until that point on that crappy Columbia house cassette. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And to hear the, the glass breaking and YYZ, just all those little details in my Sony headphones, just like the ones I have on right now. It was just amazing. You know, we had a mutual friend in grade school. I don't know why I said mutual friend. One of our friends in grade school. Okay. He had it too, and I, I believe I did hear this album back then, but you know, I didn't didn't make an impression on me back then. Yeah, well, I I can understand that. I mean, I liked Rush from from that point up until when we saw them in nineteen eighty six, but I didn't love Rush. Right. Until I saw them live. Then yeah. then it hit me. Then I got it. I agree. But I had moving pictures and I had signals, and I think those were the only two albums I had when we went to see them on the Power Windows Tour in 1986. And then, of course, 
the dam broke, as they say. The dam broke, yep. The dam broke. So anyway, moving pictures, not surprisingly, went to number one in Canada, number three in the U.S. and the U.K., didn't make it to number one. That's incredible. It sold so many copies. I don't know why it didn't go to number one in America. I was just about to say, it remains Russia's best-selling album in the United States, quadruple platinum. Nice. Over 4 million copies sold. Nice. And I probably have about seven copies. <laughs> I know. I was just going to say, I, I probably bought it. I probably bought the album, the cassette, the CD. How many albums do you think they would have sold if every Rush fan only had one copy of this album? I don't know. If they didn't. If you think it reduce it by about a million? Yeah, if the formats didn't keep changing, I don't know. <laughs> because I have, I think, even on CD, I think I have three different versions of this. Do you really? I think I do, yeah. A remastered there, version? There's a, re, a couple of remasters, yeah. And, you know, every time something comes out, I just buy it. And a lot of Rush fans do the same thing. That's right. Care to guess the singles from this record, Jer? Singles? Yeah. Well, I'm going to say, obviously, Tom Sawyer. Yeah. There's three. That's uh, one. Limelight? That's two. This is the tough one. This is a tough one. So it's not, so it's not one of the other two from the first side. It is not. Oh, boy. So from the second side, Vital Signs? Yes, Vital Signs. Well, it had wow, to be. Really? I mean, could you release Witch Hunt as a single? Right, exactly. <laughs> and the camera eye was 11 minutes long. So yeah. that, that's that. That wouldn't even fit on a single, at least one side of it. No, it wouldn't. So before we talk about the songs themselves, let's just talk about moving pictures itself and, and what it means for Rush's career. I mean, this, this made them huge. Let's just say it. Yes. I mean, they went from being just a band called Rush to, to Rush. To Rush. I mean, to Rush. They became Rush right. when this album broke. Yeah. I mean, just the, the cultural impact since then. I mean, Tom Sawyer has made its way into so many different things. TV shows. Which we will talk about. Yeah. I mean, it's. I guess it's their most accessible album. Would you say that? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I got a couple of quotes here. This is from Louder Sound, who we go to all the time for great quotes from Getty and Alex. They pretty much did an interview with them about every album. Yeah. Uh, Getty said, we had such a great time making permanent waves, but moving pictures was a much more intense experience. It took quite a bit longer to make that record. For sure, it was not as easy as we would have liked. Then Alex says, it's always hard to make records. It's always an enormous drain emotionally. And uh, Getty said they went back to the studio for moving pictures. It was the dead of winter. They had a lot of technical problems, a lot of experimenting, getting the right sounds. So it wasn't as easy as, as you would think. No, it sounds, I mean, that's the great thing about Rush, right? It always sounds easy. Oh, it always does. Yeah. But a lot of work goes into it. Yeah. And you know, even though I said that it's their most accessible album, it definitely is not short on the qualities that we love about Rush. The time signatures, the intensity of the songs, the lyrics, everything is still there just kind of shrunk down to, you know, fun size comparably to uh, mm -hmm. other songs. Now we were talking to Ray a couple of weeks ago about the cinematic Jacob's Ladder. And he mentioned that that was kind of a jumping off point to moving pictures because a lot of the songs on this record, first of all, the record's called moving pictures. So that's cinematic in itself. But a lot yeah. of the songs, Red Barchetta, The Camera Eye, Witch Hunt. I would say all of them. They all have that cinematic quality. Well, yeah, but those three in particular. Those three in particular, yeah. But yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. Everything about them. 
And do you think that's why they called the album Moving Pictures? You know, I'm not sure exactly why they called it Moving Pictures. I didn't find anything saying why they called it Moving Pictures, but I know that, you know, the album itself is a, as I've read, a called a, a triple entendre. There's right. Three different jokes. Right. Sort of on the so, album cover. So let's, let's move on to the album cover, shall we? Since you brought it okay. up. What is the triple entendre on the album cover, Jared? Well, there literally men are moving pictures, mm-hmm. right? Then there are the, the people standing around. There's one woman crying and there's like a little girl who looks like she's screaming or whatever. And they're being moved by the pictures. The pictures are very moving. They're very moving. And then you flip the album over and there's a film crew who's making a moving picture of them moving these pictures with people being moved by the pictures. Wow. That's, that's pretty hardcore. This is a great, you said the last time on our permanent waves episode that permanent waves was your favorite album cover. I think this is my favorite album cover. Yeah. They're, they're a close one and two. You know, I asked uh, people on Twitter just today, earlier today, a Twitter poll. No, it wasn't a poll. I just oh. posted a picture of the permanent waves album cover because we were talking about permanent waves this week. And I asked everybody, is this Rush's greatest album cover? And a lot of people agreed. I don't think I got a lot of moving pictures. Really? Yeah. But most people agreed with me that it, it was definitely up there. Yeah. For me, there's something about the album cover. You know, it's so kind of dark. You know, the border is black. Mm-hmm. It's not, not very brightly lit. Some albums, the album cover just reminds me about the tone of the whole album. Mm-hmm. This one does that. The Black Crows, Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. The, way, the look of that cover, that's a great one. For some reason, that, that first Van Halen album, too, the four pictures of them, mm-hmm. just like playing live. Every time I see some, an album like that, it just, just captures the spirit of the music inside. Do you think that has more to do with the music moving you than the album cover itself? Like, if you never saw, if you never saw the album cover, you just associate the album cover with that fabulous music. I mean, the first Van Halen yes. album is great. It is. So you associate those photos with the great music that's on the record. Yep. So I think it makes I, the I album agree. cover better. If the album's better, somehow the album cover becomes better in your mind. Does that make sense? Yeah. But I mean, like all the songs on moving pictures, they have a certain sound to them. Don't they sound kind of dark? Don't they sound kind of muted? A little bit. Yeah. Well, Witch Hunt for sure is dark. Yeah. But yeah, so it's just the darkness of the cover just, you know, bleeds into the, the music for me. And there's something about the red on black logo that I really like too. Yeah. It's, it really is just a beautiful art directed album. Hugh Syme did a great job. He did. And I had a tough time. I was looking for an interview that Hugh Syme may have done on this particular album cover, but I couldn't find one. Yeah. But I did find a blog. Now, I don't know how accurate this information is. The person who created the blog is named Chris Holmes. This uh, blog post was created back in 2011. Okay. But he listed the pictures on the front cover of moving pictures. That's funny because I was just going to talk about them too. You were. We'll see. We'll see if what I have here is correct. The one on the left is Joan of Arc. Is that correct? Joan of Arc. Yep. Joan of Arc. And it was painted by Hugh Syme, according to Chris. So this is not a painting that exists. He created the painting of Joan of Arc that appears on moving pictures. And it was based, I think, on one of his assistants, maybe. 
Perhaps. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Is that what you found? I thought it was a, like a photo, but maybe it's a photo that was painted over to look like a painting, you know, or treated in some way to look like a painting. Now, the second photo, according to this blog, is one of CM Coolidge's dogs playing poker paintings. That's right. Is that correct? That is. And then, of course, the third one, I didn't need to look this up. It's the Rush Starman logo. That's true. On the third moving picture. That's the most moving one, I think. Makes me cry. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this, Steve, this little trivia. Okay. But the, the man at the far left of the album cover. I did not know. He's holding one end of the Joan of Arc painting. Mm-hmm. He is the same guy who was on the cover of Hemispheres with the bowler hat. Oh, really? And, and was the model for the Starman. Oh, wow. So he's on three albums. He's on the Rush payroll. Yeah. His name is Bobby King. Very cool. So I just won you Rush Trivia Night right there. There you go. How about the building, Jared? Do you know what building it is that appears on the cover of Moving Pictures? I don't know the exact name of it. You can tell me the exact name. It's a legislative building. Yeah, it's, it's, that's pretty much it. The Ontario Legislative Building in Toronto. Oh, okay, there you go. I've seen a lot of photos on social media of just Rush fans who go to Toronto and pose in front of that building because it's still yeah. there, still looks like it does on the album cover, and you can bring your own picture and recreate the album cover if you want to. Oh, that, that would be a great idea. That would be cool. What pictures yeah. would you bring? I would, I would bring those three pictures. <laughs> and then have your wife stand off and cry while you're <laughs> carrying crying. them. <laughs> crying because we're taking precious hours away from our vacation to recreate an album cover. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing that was on this blog, again, I don't know how accurate this is, but according to Chris, Rush's record company originally rejected the cover shoot because it was too expensive. That's right. Oh, you knew this. Okay. Yep. And Rush had to pony up nine grand <laughs> yes. for the shoot to make it happen. Can you believe that? I can't believe that. Why wouldn't the record company pay for that? I don't know. I don't have the slightest idea. But now that I know the story behind this album cover, I, I kind of put it right up there with Permanent Waves. They're both very well done. Yeah. And it doesn't stop uh, the album cover either. The, what was the liner on the inside has those gr- three great pictures of the band, yeah, you know, like in motion, mm-hmm. I guess, I guess stop motion maybe. So it, it's a quadruple entendre. Those are moving pictures too. They're moving. <gasps> right? right. That's right. They're moving in the picture. Quadruple. quadruple. Quadruple entendre. <laughs> <laughs> As Alex Trebek would say, if he were speaking French, entendre. There you go. Yeah. I never thought about that, Steve. Yeah. Wow. Well, I didn't think about it until you just mentioned it. I, I remember the photos and, and they're kind of yeah. blurred because they're moving. Yeah. Especially the one of Alex, you know, he's standing up and he like crouches down and comes out of the crouch with a weird look on his face. What a great picture that is. They are so clever. Those guys. They sure are. You know, I didn't read anything about it being a quadruple entendre. And so I think maybe you just discovered it. Maybe I did. You discovered the fourth entendre. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say the word entendre like, oh man, I never thought I would discover something and there you go. I'll have to give a speech later. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you an award. So anything else on the album cover, Jared, before we move on? Yeah. A couple of things. Ooh. Um, I, during, uh, our quarantine, our isolation, our, whatever this is called, our new normal, I ordered Hugh Symes book, the art of rush. Oh, you did. Yeah. It's great. Nice. Yeah, it is. So there are a couple of like little factoids in there that are interesting. 
One is that the two girls on the front cover, you know, the two girls are standing by that guy and one of them looks like they're, she's screaming. Yeah, or yeah. She has her mouth open at least. They worked that day for a McDonald's lunch. That was their payment for the day. That's what they got? McDonald's? That's what they got. They got because McDonald's. the record company wasn't given any money for this. How come right? Getty and Alex didn't? They, they may not have been there. Rush may not have even been there. Maybe not. You'd think if the band was there, they would have bought them, I don't know. Ice cream too? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I was trying to think of a Canadian restaurant that's better than McDonald's. Not that there isn't one. I just can't think of one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the other thing is that um, Hugh and Deborah Samuel won a Juno in 1982 for Best Album Design Graphics. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, that is cool. That's great. But of course, Rush did not win. Uh, well, they, I guess they won a Juno, but they didn't win a Grammy, as we discussed before. We discussed it before. We'll, we'll get to that when we get to YYZ. That's because right. Because I have more to say about That's that. That's right. But anyway, yeah. why don't we get into the music, Jar? Tom Sawyer. A Monday warrior, mean, mean stride. Today's Tom Sawyer, mean, mean So, Jared, before we talk about Tom Sawyer, I'm going to go back to Loudersound.com okay. for some quotes from Getty and Alex. Okay. Getty says, everybody points at Tom Sawyer as the big song on moving pictures, but Red Barchetta was such a pivotal song on that record. Red Barchetta came pretty easy and got us rolling. Tom Sawyer was the complete opposite. Alex says, Tom Sawyer was such a hard song to get right. At one point, we weren't sure that we were even going to be able to make it work. Wow. And then Getty says the hardest thing of all was getting the right guitar sound in the solo section. We wanted that section to be played pretty much as a three-piece, not a whole lot of overdubs, but with a sound that filled up the stereo spectrum and didn't sound empty. So the guitar sound for Alex's solo was really critical. It wasn't drowning in echo. That was the old trick we used in the past. If you want to fill the space, put an echo plex on Alex and the repeats will fill up the space. But we didn't mm. want to do that. We're going for this dry sound with all that unique tone and for it not to feel empty. That was kind of hard. And Getty also says at one point they said, we always have one song on every album that doesn't quite click. And we thought that Tom Sawyer was going to be that one, which just goes to show you, we don't know what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say, they don't know what they're talking about, obviously. And then Alex said, when we finally nailed it, we were so happy. I mean, can you imagine if they tossed that out? No, I, I mean, really. How would that Jeez. have changed Rush's career? I mean, if Tom Sawyer never existed, what does that change for Rush? Right. I'm slightest idea, man. It's, it's, I don't know. It's such a, it's such a, again, we're talking about album openers. What, I mean, just a beautiful way to open an album. Yeah. Just exploding and not even like going crazy, just kind of like exploding, kind of drifting. Right. And to think they almost tossed it out. I mean, that's incredible to me to even think that. Yeah. So Tom Sawyer, did you read the book, Jer? Uh, Yeah, in like (laughs) eighth grade. Do the lyrics have anything to do with the adventures of Tom Sawyer, the book, do you think? In a sort of of a way? In as much as, you know, Tom Sawyer in the book is kind of like a, I don't know, iconoclast maybe. 
he doesn't really listen to the people around him. He just does whatever he wants to do. He's a scamp. A scamp? Yeah, he's a little scamp. <laughs> but, you know, I have a couple of quotes, too, from, from Neil. Okay. Oh, cool. In researching this, I, I just went on YouTube and tried to find as many interviews as I could. And there was a really good interview with Neil. It was when the 30th anniversary, I believe, of Moving Pictures, when they put out the, you know, the box set or whatever they put out. The video is called Moving Pictures Track by Track. And he was interviewed by a guy named George Strombopoulos. I'm going to get that wrong. So it's a really long Greek name. Okay. But he was talking, so Neil, this is a, a kind of a long quote from Neil about building how he builds drum parts, particularly the drum part of Tom Sawyer. He says, I started off simple for the listener's sake. This is something I learned in writing too. And this song is a great example. First, what does the listener need to know? They teach you that in writing class. What does the reader need to know? So I state a rhythm as strongly as I can, whether it's a straightforward backbeat like Tom Sawyer or something more complicated. When I first state that, I try to make it as clear as I can for the listener. Occasionally trick them on purpose, the turnaround things you do on purpose, deliberately because they're fun for musician listeners. But for the most part, as in prose, I have to decide what the reader needs to know first to get the picture I'm trying to send. Drumming, exactly the same. Here's the rhythm, and here's all the ways I'm going to play with it. And if you listen to the drums on Tom Sawyer, they get progressively more complicated as the song goes on. Yeah. My son just took up the drums. Yep. And the one rush part he can play is the beginning of Tom Sawyer. No way with the hi-hat? Plays it all the time. He loves it. Oh, oh my God. But he, you know, he doesn't play the whole song because the song, I mean, gets crazier and crazier on the drums as, as it goes along, as you said. Yeah. But he can play the beginning. Yeah, that's cool. It's simple. But yeah, so I mean, I guess that's something that I never really paid too much attention to when it comes to Neil's drums. I'm going to have to go back and listen to see if the drum parts get more complicated on some songs as they go on. Well, I remember we talked about this on a previous podcast that Neil had said, someone asked him if he gets sick of playing Tom Sawyer because they played Tom Sawyer at every single show since 1980. And he said he doesn't get sick of it because it's so difficult to play. He feels it's a challenge to play the song every single time he plays it. And it's very difficult to get perfect. And when he gets it perfect, he's so happy about it. Yeah. And actually, I have a quote about, about that very thing from the same interview. He says, I haven't changed barely a note, maybe one fill in Tom Sawyer in 30 years because it's still challenging and satisfying to play how I made it up. Yeah. And, and again, we, we talked about this with Neil too, that he basically wrote drum parts for every song. And he played yeah. them all exactly as he wrote them all the time. Yep. Plays the drums the same way every single time, which is amazing to me that he can do that. Really is. It is. Yeah. So in July, 1980, Jer, they recorded the song Battle Scar with their buddies at Max Webster. I still haven't listened to Battle Scar. I know. I haven't listened to it either. We're, you know, we're going to need to do on the podcast. We're going to need to do an episode where we listen to Battle Scar. You ever see those videos? where people react to songs, hearing them for the first oh, yeah. time. We can do that on this podcast. Oh, absolutely. Let's not listen to it. Okay. We'll listen to it as we do the podcast and react to it. Okay. We'll see how that goes. It'll sort of be like listening to half a Rush song for the first time. Right. Yeah, that's true. But anyway, when they recorded Battle Scar in 1980, lyricist Pai Dubois was there. He wrote a lot of the lyrics for Max Webster, and that's when he suggested the song... Tom Sawyer for Rush to possibly record. 
and I believe at the time, and I read in two different places, one place said it was called Lewis the Lawyer, and another yeah. place said it was called Lewis the Warrior. Yeah, I think I read that the actual title was, I think it's it was Louis, Louis the Lawyer. Oh, Louis, not Lewis? I think so, yeah. Even though it's spelled like Lewis. How would Rush's career have been different if this song was called <laughs> Lewis, Lewis the, the Lawyer? lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't sound as cool to me. No, it doesn't. But you know, I have another quote again from that same interview. Okay. From Neil about working with Pi Dubois. All right. He says, Pi had a strange way of writing in these exercise books. They were just laden with this street edgy kind of lyricism imagery. And he worked part time in an insane asylum. What? <laughs> That's what it says. That's what he said. And he worked part time in an insane asylum. He had a lot of different influences than I did. They were kind of formless, but I'm good at imposing form. So it made a great combination when I could extrapolate really good passages from him and give them shape into a song and then pass them over to Getty to make them singable. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. So Pie Dubois, this is one of three songs he contributed to Rush. Yeah. Between Sun and Moon was another. Mm -hmm. Force 10 was another. This, of course, is, you know, the song yeah. that Rush is known for. If you ask just a generic music fan who barely knows Rush, Name a Rush song. This is it. Yeah, definitely going to be one of them at least. But, you know, I tried to find a copy of Louis the Lawyer. The lyrics, you mean? Well, the original poem. Oh, okay. I could not, I could not find a copy. Because I remember I found a copy of, you know, Between Sun and Moon, the you know, the poem that inspired Between Sun and Moon. Mm -hmm. But I, I could not find a copy. So if anybody has a copy of Louis the, the Lawyer, send it in to us. I would love to read it. Before we break down this song... First of all, I never get tired of hearing this song. Never. 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 But I've heard some Rush fans say that they are tired of hearing this song. I mean, this song has been played over and over and over again on rock radio. Do you think that diminishes it in the eyes of some Rush fans? No. I, I don't know how. I'm curious. I'm curious if there are some Rush fans out there that are listening right now who are just, just don't want to hear Tom Sawyer anymore. You know, I could see that with some bands. I mean, I never have to hear Satisfaction again in my entire life. And I think it might be because, you know, the Stones are kind of like a, a legacy act at this point, right? They come out every, I don't know, decade, play some tunes, you know, and they trot out all their old hits. But, you know, Rush was such a vibrant band for so long that it wasn't like they were just trotting out old hits. Well, that's why it's perfect that they retired when they did. They left while they were still on top. Yeah. They didn't want to be one of those guys in their 70s wheeling out there in a wheelchair. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, they didn't want to do that. And, you no. know, obviously now they, they can't tour anymore because Neil has unfortunately passed, but I don't think they would have anyway. No. And, you know, I wouldn't have wanted them to if they'd never made another album after Clockwork Angels. And, you know, I wouldn't want them to come around for, you know, tours every once in a while. That wouldn't be fun at all. No, not at all. So shall we talk about the song itself, Jer? Why not? We're, we're here. We might as well. Your thoughts? Mm, I, don't, I don't know what to say. I don't have the vocabulary <laughs> for this song, for really for any Rush song, but this song in particular. I don't think, you know, this song to me is just a flawless song. I know I said that about a, a lot of songs, but this song is the most flawless of all flawless songs. It really is. Just everything about it, you know, just 
the the spacey kind of keyboard at the at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of space in room. You were talking about the um, solo, right? Yeah, I, I didn't know that about the whatever the echo that they usually put on his solos, but this solo is so beautiful, right? It takes a little while to to get cooking because when it's par for the solo, it's just he, he waits a little bit to come into it. Yeah, well, the thing is, Getty's soloing at the same time, kind of like in Free Will. You've got a bass solo yeah. from Getty at the same time. And he gives Getty some room to play there at the beginning, and then he comes in, ring, you know. Yep. And it's it's just amazing. Alex's solo is tremendous on this song. It is tremendous, yeah. And I found a quote of him saying, I winged it. I came in, I did five takes, and then I went off and had a cigarette. (laughs) And he said they used pieces of each of those five takes for the solo that's on the record. And that's the way he did almost all his solos. He just winged it. Oh, man, that's awesome. Just as Neil, we talked about this before, Neil was meticulously writing every single part, and Alex is just, winging it and it's equally brilliant for such a hard edged and rocking song this is a very emotional solo for sure right out the gate and you know i saw when i was uh going through youtube trying to find things i found a video well it's actually just audio from one of the first times they played tom sawyer before they recorded it and the guitar solo is completely different and it's not nearly as good no you sent that to me i did no, it's just, yeah, it's just, he's just wailing. It's almost like he's just doing some kind of heavy metal kind of fingerboard exercises. Now that was recorded before they recorded the song though, correct? The thing was, I don't think the song sounded nearly as good as it ended up sounding. No. And I can understand why Getty thought it wasn't going to work. Right. It's slow in parts. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a weird version of it. And there are different lyrics at the end. Yeah. Which I could not make out. Neither could I. But lyrically. Let's start with the lyrics. Yeah, ly- I, I'm going to lean on you for these lyrics, Jar, because I, I really don't know what they mean. <laughs> after all these years, I know. I after all these years, I have no idea. It's I think you know, it's a collaboration with Pi Dubois. Every song that that Neil has written, especially between Sun and Moon, like he said about Pi's writing, it's hard to pin down the real meaning. I mean, I kind of, I guess over the years, I've kind of developed my own interpretation of the song, but I have my confidence level is very low as to what it's supposed to be about. Who is today's Tom Sawyer, Jar? Well, do you remember when the, you remember the, the video? I do. That was uh, the one that was recorded at La Studio, correct? It was mostly them performing live, was it not? Yeah, it was. I remember around the same time, though, there was a lot of talk about this song being about like kids playing video games. Do you remember that? I don't. Yeah, because there's this one line in here where he says, uh, you know, t- today's Tom Sawyer, he gets high on you in the space he invades. He gets by on you. Oh. Supposedly that's a, re- it's a reference to space invaders. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. This was 1980, right? Yeah, I think so. So I think uh, supposedly, again, this is what I've read. I didn't 
you know, think of this on my own because again, I don't really know what the song is all about. But it's supposed to be about the kind of kids who are, you know, getting into video games and not really doing, you know, traditional things that their parents might want them to do, you know? Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. Today's Tom Sawyer is uh, playing video games and he still is. Yeah. He's a, he's a kind of a rule breaker, but breaking the kind of rules that don't make any sense. Right. Doing the things. It's just like the band themselves, right? Doing their own thing. That's cool. Let's talk about the first verse, right? A modern day warrior, mean, mean stride. Today's Tom Sawyer, mean, mean pride. Any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, if you're talking about the video games, maybe the modern day warrior is he's fighting at the, in the video game. Maybe that's, Oh it. yeah, maybe. Yeah. I never thought of it that way, but that could be it. It could be again. I'm not convinced really of, of any interpretation that I've read about this song. And I was just thinking of the, the word mean in there for a long time. I thought it meant, you know, angry or something, but I don't think it does. I think it might have something to do with like, if you say somebody plays a mean guitar, meaning they're very skillful at it or they're very good at it or they have a lot of attitude behind it. More of a purposeful stride? Yes, exactly. And purposeful pride. Okay. I'm not going anywhere with that thought. I just, (laughs) that's just my interpretation of that one word. Okay. That makes sense. But then we go to the, the meat of the song, if you ask me, right? Though his mind is not for rent, don't put him down as arrogant. Thoughts on that? (laughs) I have no idea. I have no idea. idea. That's the thing. So uh, my interpretation of that is, you know, he is a free thinker, kind of like, kind of like Neil himself, right? His mind is not for rent. You can't get him to think about what you want him to think about. His mind is his own space and he's not going to give it away to anybody, whether it's society or religion or whatever, right? But at the same time, don't put him down as arrogant because sometimes people who, you know, don't really, who live outside of the system can seem like arrogant and they, maybe they, people think that they feel like they're better than everybody else because of the way that they live. I've got an idea here. Okay. Is Tom Sawyer Neil? Again, maybe. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> because Neil's mind was not for rent. That's right. People may have thought he was arrogant. Yeah. Maybe. And uh, the next couple of lines are kind of like Neil too. His reserve, a quiet defense writing out the day's events. Right. This sounds like Neil to me. Yeah. But what does the river mean? Well, the river's in, in Tom Sawyer. They have, they take a, a trip down the river, I think. Oh, okay. I guess so. Yeah. But it could all just writing out the day's events though. It could be just like the river could just be a metaphor for, you know, moving along through time. Yeah. So his reserve, a quiet defense, writing out the day's events. He's just trying to, I guess it's like, he's trying to just get through the day. Right. Without anyone bothering him. Yeah, without anyone bothering him. Sounds a lot like Neil. <laughs> yeah. And then we get to an interesting part. You know, again, this is one of those songs, I don't know if it really has a chorus, or at least nothing that, that acts like a regular chorus, right? No, no. Because the, the words Tom Sawyer are in the verse, not in the chorus. Right. Because then we get to this part, what you say about his company is what you say about society. That's deep. That is really deep. Because to me, it seems like, so we have this kid, this Tom Sawyer kid, right? Your reaction to him and the thing is that he is doing kind of reflects on what you think society should be about. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Right? What you say about his company is what you say about society, about what you think society should be. You know, you 
old people are always complaining about young people, you know, growing their hair. I can't tell you how many times my mom got on my case because I had long hair. It's a ridiculous thing, right? Who cares about how long your hair is? Yeah. You know, one day you're going to grow up and cut it. Right. I had an earring too. <laughs> she was, she almost died when I got an earring. Uh, have you ever showed her your tattoos, Jer? Uh, I don't know if I did. I think she might've seen them. I think you should show her now. See how that goes. <laughs> see what she says. Yeah. So that's my favorite line of the whole song. What you say about his company is what yeah. you say about society. That is great. Yeah. And then just, I put a big question mark next to the next part. Catch the mist, catch the myth, catch the mystery, catch the drift. He's a mystery man. I guess so. But catch the mist is interesting because you can't catch the mist, right? Yeah. Just, it's not even there to catch. He's off in the mist. And catch the drift. I like that line. Catch the drift. Catch my drift. Yeah. Get my drift. Yeah. That's what I was thinking, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's totally. Another part of the song which maybe is where the, the chorus should go, but it's not really the chorus, right? The world is, the world is, love and life are deep, maybe as his skies are wide. The world is opened up to him. Right. He's, he's free and the future is wide open because he's unconstrained by whatever society's telling him he should be doing or should do. See, the more, the more we talk about this, the more I think it's Neil. I think Spacey yeah. Invades has nothing to do with Space Invaders. No? No, I don't think so. I, don't, I can't picture Neil playing Space Invaders. Do you? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he's just um, projecting his own personality on you know, the kids he sees around him. Like he would be that kid playing Space Invaders if he was 10 in 1980? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. He'd be great, He'd be great at it. He'd be, he was great <laughs> right? at everything. <laughs> I know. He would spend so much time playing Space Invaders. I, played a, I spent a lot of time playing Space Invaders and I never got any good at it. Yeah, that was a tough one. It was a tough one. And then comes this solo thing, right? It's like a keyboard solo. Yeah. And I love the keyboard sound on this song. And like, it, then he's, yeah. And then, like you said, there's the bass part and mm -hmm. then the guitar solo comes in. Right. And it's not even, he doesn't really even attack it from the beginning, right? It's kind of like sliding up yep. these notes. Oh man, it's so perfect. And compared to the solo you, you showed me on that, that video, the first time they played it to what yeah. you hear on the record is night and day. Yeah. So much yeah. better. So we get back into the lyrics, Jer. Noah's mind is not for rent to any God or government. Sounds like Neil to me. I love, I've always loved that line. Noah's mind is not for rent to any God or government. Always hopeful, yet discontent. He knows changes aren't permanent, but changes. Great line. That's my favorite line of this, the song. Yeah. The always hopeful, yet discontent, I love because this person, you know, is like looking to the future, is hopeful that things are going to get better. Or, you know, whatever he considers to be better. But he's discontent, right? He's unhappy with the way things are now. Mm -hmm. So he's thinking about the future and hoping things get better in the future, while in the present, just being kind of unhappy about the way things are going. Still think it's Neil. I know, I know. But what do you think of it? Let's talk about changes aren't permanent, but changes. I just think it's a great line. I mean, it's, it's true, right? It is. The only constant is change. Changes aren't permanent, but change... Change always happens. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's a theme that Neil hits upon a few other times as well. You know, the, the need to adapt to a new situation. Well, we were just talking about it in natural science, no? That's right. Yeah. You know, like, and so maybe, maybe this person's discontent comes from the current change that happened to him. 
but he knows he's hopeful because he knows that another change is going to come around at some point. Yeah. Change is constant. Change is constant. Right. But again, that's just a guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is, I mean, we could talk all day about these lyrics and we still don't really know. Right. Which is what I love about this song. I think it's great. And then in the next part, it's an enigma. We've got the, the, the catch lines again, but this time it's catch the witness, catch the wit, catch the spirit, catch the spit. Yeah. <laughs> no idea. Yeah. But it's, but I love it. I love it too. How could you get sick of this song, Jer? How could you? You can't get sick of this song, especially, you know, we didn't even talk about like the coming out of the solo, the crazy drum fills. Oh yeah. Just, it's like very majestic, right? This song just keeps on, like Neil said, this song just keeps on building and building and building and building until it ends almost like it began, right? Yeah. So the end of it is, exit the warrior, today's Tom Sawyer. He gets high on you and the energy you trade. He gets right on to the friction of the day. That's great. <laughs> it seems to me like this, this guy's having a, maybe a, a hard time in life, right? If his day is filled with friction, Right? He might be doing the things that he wants to do and is comfortable doing them and is happy doing with them, but he still feels the friction of, the, of society's constriction on him. Or feels the friction of just having to deal with other people. Maybe, yeah. Again, Neil. Again, maybe it's Neil. Yep. Maybe this song is about him. Maybe it is. Maybe Pai Dubois' poem was about Tom Sawyer, but Neil melded the words to fit him. Yeah. Bent them to his will. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's nothing like the poem. I mean, we don't have it, so we don't know. Yeah. But I would imagine it's quite different. And I think that the line, um, he gets high on you and the energy you trade, it, that might reference the fact that sometimes, you know, rebels kind of get off on the fact that people think they're rebels, their reaction to rebels. You know what I mean? They want mm -hmm. to be provocative and it makes them even more provocative when people are shocked by their provocation. Yeah. So I think after what, 20 minutes of discussing those lyrics, we still really don't know. No, we don't. But it was nice to try. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the few Rush songs that I love to think about. I love to sing along with it. And I don't know what it means, but I kind of feel like I know what it means, even though I can't express what it's about. Well, maybe it means different things to different people. Yeah. Like Getty always says about all Rush songs, interpret them how you like. I kind of feel the same way about a lot of Nirvana lyrics. They sometimes, you know, on, on the face of them, they seem to just be a random thoughts strung together. But if you try to string those thoughts together, they make a certain kind of sense. Yeah, definitely. And the lyrics are just, are just amazing, really. Yeah. Now, the time signature of this song, Jer, mostly in 4-4. Oh, boy. But the instrumental and closing sections that we just talked about are in 7-8. Yeah, it definitely is a masterpiece, a masterpiece. I wonder, you said it was difficult for them to, you know, to record the song, to try to click with it. And I wonder if that had something to do with almost the ferocity of this song. In some parts, this song just kind of takes off. Yeah. So it's almost as if they're trying to like push through to get to the other side of the song. And I wonder if that's really what happened. Yeah. And I think it's more complicated than it sounds. Yeah, I know. Like, again, you said there's time changes in it. You can't really tell. I can't tell. I think it was really instructional for you and I to hear them play the song live the first time they played it 
and it sounds completely different, and you hear how difficult it is to get a song like this right. Yeah, I know. We always think that songs, you know, we're used to versions of songs that we've heard on albums. You don't really realize how many different takes were done and how many different permutations of the song came through and how how we might have a different version of this song in our heads and maybe we love that one instead. Yeah. It's it's an amazing song and the impact it's had on just the music world in general and pop culture. I mean, I have a list here yeah. of all the movies and TV shows this song has been used in. Uh The Water Boy, Halloween, of course I Love You Man prominently in that. Yeah. Uh, Freaks and Geeks, The Sopranos, The Sopranos. I don't remember that. I never watched The Sopranos. You never watched The Sopranos? <laughs> no, I never did. What? It was on the same time as The Simpsons, and I didn't have a DVR back then or anything, so I didn't watch The Simpsons. Hang on a second. It was on at <laughs> 9 o'clock. The Simpsons was on at 7. No. Yes. No. Sopranos was on late. Kids couldn't be up oh. watching that. I think you have to watch The Sopranos. Maybe, maybe it was, I don't know what I'm thinking of. Anyway, we can cut that out. <laughs> but I just ha- I just have a whole bunch of stuff here of all the all the various things that Tom Sawyer has appeared on. Of course, the the Colbert Report. Remember when they were on the Colbert Report? Yep, they did Tom Sawyer. That was great. A lot of people were mad about that. Them being on the Colbert Report that he interrupted them and didn't let them play and kind of made a it, joke. It about was a them joke playing, though. Like, taking a nap. Of course it was. But Rush loved that. I know. He was making a joke about them doing long songs. And right. And this wasn't even one of their long songs that they played. But he yeah. I think he pretended he was falling asleep during it or something like that. Yeah, he went he went to take a nap or something. <laughs> he asked them one of the one of the funniest questions ever. He asked them if they'd ever played a song for so long that by the end of it they were influenced by the beginning of it or something like that. <laughs> They were influenced by themselves because the song was so long. Oh, that's awesome. And they loved that. I remember they, they had a good time on that show. Yeah. Because his, his sense of humor was just like theirs. Yeah. Of course, one of the times I remember them hearing play Tom Sawyer is at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame concert. They played it that night. Yep. It was outstanding mm-hmm. then, too. I kind of hope we did this song some kind of justice. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, you know, you brought up one of the emails we read. About somebody ripping off a song? I think I mentioned, you know, My Sweet Lord as an example of someone really ripping off a song. Right. Well, I have a quote here from somebody who used to be the manager of Journey. Okay. He claims that Rush ripped off Journey for Tom Sawyer. Is there a song we can listen to? Yes, there is. What's it called? So, so first, here's the quote. All the other bands in their supposed genre meaning Journey's genre, had really come and gone. Boston, Foreigner, Styx, REO, and all those bands had their hits way before Journey had theirs. In fact, some of those hits were things borrowed from Journey. If you listen to I'm Gonna Leave You on the Look in the Future record, track five, side one, is Carry On, Wayward Son by Kansas. And I listened to it, and it does sort of sound like Carry On, My Wayward Son, a little bit. Really? They just lifted it. And if you listen on the third album, Next, the song Nickel and Dime, that is Tom Sawyer by Rush, and they didn't modify it very much. All right. This is, un- <laughs> this is unusual. We've never done this before. 
I'm actually going to listen to that song right now. You you can put a little piece of it in. You got to go I'm you got to l- go about a minute in. Sounds a little bit like Xanadu. Do you think it sounds like like Tom Sawyer? I don't think it sounds like Tom Sawyer at all. But apparently, no. this guy's been quoted in a bunch of places saying Rush ripped off Journey. Interesting, right? It was a very rocking song, though. Yeah, you know, I was surprised. I never listened to early Journey. Just uh, diving into this, I was listening to a bunch of their older stuff, and it's pretty rocking. Neil Sean knew what he was doing. Yeah, who who was the singer back then? Do you know? I have no idea. I'm looking at a mm. photo of the band. I mean, you can see Neil. It's his band. Yeah. I have no idea who the singer was. But they didn't mm. become anything until Steve Perry joined the band, really. Yeah, it's true. So as you said, Jar, I hope, I hope we did this song justice. Yeah, I hope we did. And, you know, our plan was to talk about more than Tom Sawyer on this first episode of Moving Pictures, but we talked for so long. I think, I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's going to have to be it. <laughs> One song. Next time, let's try and get two in. Can we talk about Red Barchetta and YYZ in the next episode? I think so. We can try. Red Barchetta, there's a lot to talk about in Red Barchetta. I know. Well, that's the thing. I didn't think we were going to be able to get it all in. That's why I said, you know, let's talk about the album art, and then we'll just talk about Tom Sawyer and see see where we're at. And we're we're pretty far in. (laughs) We are very far in. Anyway, you can find us on Twitter at The Rush Fancast, Instagram, The Rush Cast, Email Jerry, the rushcast at gmail.com. And Jer, hope you have a quote for me. Of course I have a quote for you. <laughs> Would you ever let me down? We only talked about one song. How could I not have a quote for you? You ready? Yes. No, his mind is not for rent to any god or government. Always hopeful yet discontent. He knows changes aren't permanent. But changes. It sure is. Take it easy. Bye. Bye.